The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 21, of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day, Paragraphs 5 and 6. The reading of the Scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching, and conscionable hearing of the Word, in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, besides religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon several occasions, which are in their own several times and seasons, to be used in a holy and religious manner. Paragraph 6. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship, is now, under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed, or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily, and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God, by his word or providence, calleth thereunto. Welcome everyone to episode 64 of This We Confess, a journey through the Westminster Confession of Faith. We find ourselves in chapter 21 of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day, And in the opening paragraphs of this chapter, we have heard that creation shows us there is a God. But this God of ours tells us in his word how he is to be worshipped. Worship is to the triune God alone, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And prayer takes a big part in what we do when we come to worship. And by the time paragraph 5 comes along, the Westminster Divines begin to put more meat on the bones of what we are to do when we worship the Lord. Regardless of what fellowship you belong to or attend, the elements of our public worship should be the same. The Lord has not left it up to our imaginations to decide what it is that we do when we gather to praise him. Paragraph 5 begins with the reading of the scriptures with godly fear. An essential part of our public worship is exactly this. At some point in the service, the preacher will stand and declare, This is the word of God. And then he will read clearly from the scriptures. And he will read from the scriptures with godly fear. 
Reading the Word of God is not something that is to be taken lightly. We are reading the very words of God. And therefore, we should approach the reading of the Scriptures with this godly fear and be careful to clearly and verbally articulate what the Lord has said. We see in the Scriptures that this has been part of the worship of the Church from the very beginning. In Acts 15 and verse 21, we read that for from ancient generations... Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The reading of the Pentateuch, the reading of Moses from ancient generations had taken place. And then in Revelation 1 and verse 3, we're told that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, that being the book of Revelation. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Not just should we read Moses or the book of Revelation, but all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation should be read publicly in the meeting house and read with godly fear. Now, of course, the word of God stands on its own. I believe that perhaps the best sermon I ever preached was just four readings from God's word. That story will wait for another day. But we should not miss the point here. That when we read the word of God, when we read the scriptures, we read the very words that have proceeded from the mouth of God. They are worth listening to. They are worth taking seriously. And so this should form a part of what we do every single time we meet. But just as the word of God stands solidly on its own, the Lord has also appointed the sound preaching of his word as a means to build up his church and to convert the heathen. And the divines tell us exactly that. We read the scriptures with godly fear, and when we gather, preaching is to be part of what we do. It was the Apostle Paul who told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and 2 to preach the word, and to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The word is to be read, and the word is to be preached. And I know sometimes these ordinary means are taken for granted and they are treated with contempt. I think it is a mark of a church that is apathetic and lukewarm when we don't want too much of God's word. But the divines could not be clearer. Scriptures are to be read and the scriptures are to be preached. But just as they are read and preached within our earshot, we are not to sit idly and daydream about our lunch or what we're going to do at work this week. Instead, the divines say that we are to come and conscionably listen or hear of the word. In other words, listening to the word read and listening to the word preached is an actual discipline. We are to strive to listen well. We are to take in everything that is read and everything that has been said. We are to be obedient unto God to what he has said in his word. We are to believe what God has said in his word. We are to receive it by faith. And we are to come to the word of God with reverence. Ask yourself, my friends, does this describe how you come to the word of God? When it is read on a Sunday morning, do you actually really listen? Or is it another opportunity to tune out? When it is preached, do you listen conscionably? Do you listen to it asking yourself, what does this passage mean? What am I hearing? What does God require of me? What am I to believe about this passage? What does it teach me? Not many of us listen to the reading and the preaching of the word in this way, but 
It is required of us. The Lord says in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, All these things my hand has made, and so all of these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It isn't very often that we tremble at the word of God. But again, when we hear it read and when we hear it preached, may we remind ourselves, this is the word of God. We do not want to be like those in Hebrews 4 and 2, who the word did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Instead, we want to be like those as described in James 1 and verse 22, who are doers of the word and not just hearers only, otherwise deceiving ourselves. And so the divines are absolutely clear. When we gather to worship the Lord, we are to read the scriptures. The scriptures are to be read with godly fear, taking them seriously, and they are to be preached, and they are to be listened to and acted upon. And the scriptures also serve as our hymn book. The Westminster Divines tell us that when we gather for worship, then we are also to sing psalms. Psalm singing has fallen out of practice in the denomination in which I serve. And over the 12 years that I have been the minister in Balnehinch, and in a few years before that in Larne, I did my very best to reintroduce the practice of singing psalms. This isn't just because I'm an old, boring, fuddy-duddy, as sometimes I have been accused, but it is because psalm singing is a distinctive part of Reformed worship. And not just Reformed worship, but we see it in the pages of the Scriptures. We know that when the Lord Jesus had finished the Lord's Supper and headed towards the Mount of Olives, he and his disciples sang a psalm. We read that in Matthew 26 and verse 30, and we believe that it was probably Psalm 118 that the Lord Jesus sang. So we sing psalms following the example of Christ, but also, as we see in Ephesians and Colossians, the Word of God compels us to sing psalms. Ephesians 5 and 19 states, Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And Paul in Colossians 3 and 16 writes, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We like to sing hymns and spiritual songs, but often the practice of singing psalms has been neglected. May it not be so. There is no greater joy than to sing the very words of God, and I pray indeed that a new generation of young people will grow up knowing the blessing and the delight of singing psalms. So we're to sing psalms in our public worship with grace in our hearts. And when we gather, we're also to receive the sacraments that have been instituted by Christ. The Reformed Church recognizes only two sacraments, those being baptism and the Lord's Supper. They have replaced circumcision and the Passover meal. Therefore, from the very beginning, the Church of Jesus Christ has only ever had two sacraments. And the Lord Jesus commands us to baptize. In Matthew 28 and verse 19, he states, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The church, as they started to take the gospel from Jerusalem, took this command seriously. We read in Acts 2 and 42 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 11 and 23 to 29 what Paul states clearly about the Lord's Supper. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the church, when the church gathers, is to come to the Lord's table. And the church, when it gathers, is to baptise individuals who have never been baptised before and the children of one or both believing parents. And although currently it is not our practice in the church in which I serve to come to the Lord's table every single week, it is certainly my hope that one day we will get to that place. If someone was coming forward for baptism every single week, then they would be baptised. So I do not see any reason why we should not come to the Lord's table every single week. Every time the word is read, I believe we should have the table set, because at the table we see the visible word, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ represented in the elements of bread and wine. The sacraments are given to us to build us up in the faith, to strengthen the church of Jesus Christ. And so religious worship on the Sabbath day is to make use of these ordinary means. The sacraments are to be administered. All of these, say the divines, are all the parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. I'm fairly certain that all of the things that we have discussed today will form a part of what you do every time you gather for public worship. But as paragraph 5 concludes, there are several other aspects which are appropriate in a time and a place. They are religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings and thanksgivings. The divines say that in times and seasons, these too are to be used in a holy and religious manner. We are to call upon God as a witness at times. We are to take a religious oath. We read in Deuteronomy 6 and 13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So at times it is appropriate to call upon God as our witness, and also it is appropriate to promise unto the Lord that we will carry out a certain action. We can indeed make a vow to the Lord. But even as we discuss calling upon the Lord as a witness and making a vow unto him, I believe Ecclesiastes 5 and verses 4 to 5 are worthwhile in reading. We read there, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And so, brothers and sisters, if we call upon the Lord to act as our witness, may we tell the truth. And if we vow unto him that we will perform a certain duty, then may we do that duty. May we not treat the Lord as a fool, because he has certainly no pleasure in fools. At times, too, it is useful and a good thing for us to fast. Many of us live each day on a regular routine. Breakfast, lunch and dinner we eat every day and delight in the food that we have been given and the world keeps moving on. But sometimes for the purpose of prayer it is good to stop, it is good to retreat from the table and it is good to call upon the Lord. The Lord calls upon us to do exactly this in Joel 2 and verse 12. 
Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And so at times it is appropriate for us in our religious worship to fast. And in all of this, we are to be incredibly thankful. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, says Paul in Hebrews 12 and 28. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It is appropriate to be thankful to God on various occasions, say the Westminster Divines. Perhaps we celebrate a child's birthday. Perhaps we celebrate answered prayer. Perhaps when a new church building is opened, we praise the Lord for his faithfulness and seeing a new witness started. It is appropriate on special occasions to be thankful unto God. But I think the clean teaching of the divines here is to say that we should be thankful on all occasions. They continue this thought as paragraph 6 begins. There they state that neither prayer nor any part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied onto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. In other words, say the divines, it doesn't matter if you are in the grandest cathedral on this planet or if you are in a wooden shed in a field. As you gather to worship the Lord, neither place makes your worship more acceptable. As Christians, when we pray, for example, we do not turn in the direction of Jerusalem. It doesn't matter what direction we are facing and it doesn't matter which building we are in. If we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, then it is acceptable in his sight. Oh, how I wish that many in our own denomination would realize this once again. How many times do we fight and argue and split over buildings? I know several churches not a million miles away who have these very arguments continuing to this day. Which buildings should be used? Which buildings should be closed? My friends, the Lord does not care about your buildings. Prayer is not made more special. The worship that we offer unto God is not more approved by the place in which we perform it. The Lord Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4 and 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Instead, the divines tell us that God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth. Jesus says in John 4 and 23 to 24, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the building in which we worship may be the grandest in all of Ireland. And when we gather we may say all the right things. And we may sound wonderful when we sing, and our choir may have 100 members and sing in perfect harmony. But my friends, if we do not worship in spirit and in truth, or in other words, if we do not come saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and empowered by him, and if we do not come seeking the truth of God's word, if we come living a lie, if we come believing that we are made righteous by our own works, then God has no regard for our worship. God has no regard for performance that is devoid of the spirit and the truth. The true church of Jesus Christ could worship in a disease-infested swamp, but still worship in spirit and truth 
and it would still be acceptable in the sight of our triune God. But the Christian doesn't just worship when called out of the world to the meeting house on a Sabbath day, but this paragraph tells us that the Christian is also to worship in their family and also in secret. And this worship is to be offered daily. We pray, do we not? Give us this day our daily bread. And it is the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 and 18 who urges us to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, and to that end we are to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so the Christian doesn't switch off when they leave the meeting house on the Lord's day. They are to worship daily. They are to do so privately. Jesus says to go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. But we are also to worship in our families. In Deuteronomy 6 and 6 to 7, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It is a tragedy of modern Christianity that we have outsourced the teaching of our families to professional organisations, parachurch groups and even our own Sunday schools. They are the places where our children learn. My brothers and sisters, we need to recapture a vision of family worship. We need to once again realise that the greatest youth workers our families will ever have are their parents. We are to worship as families. We are to worship daily. We are to worship in private. And yet with that said, paragraph 6 concludes by stating that we are to worship all the more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calls us to that place. My brothers and sisters, the divines are clear. Worship is to be offered at all times unto the Lord. But the solemn assembly, the public gathering, when the Lord calls his people together as the church, the ecclesia, and we are called out of the world to worship him, that is a very significant and special meeting that is not to be neglected. How easily do we slip away from the public worship of God? We treat it as if it is secondary. We treat it as if it is irrelevant to us and to our families. We can go to church once every few weeks and that is more than enough. And even when we are there, we complain when it lasts far, far too long. But in these days of distance and lockdown, may our hunger for and delight in the gathering of God's people grow. When we come together as a church, we do so like the church in Acts 2 to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. We are to attend weekly to the ordinary means of grace. It is for our good. It is in that place that the Lord strengthens our faith and grows us up. It is in that place that we can meet and pray with one another and carry one another's burdens. It is that place that we come and we hear the voice of God speaking into our lives and it is in that place where the word is preached. So brothers and sisters, pray and worship publicly, privately. Lead your families, go into the secret place. Worship in spirit and in truth. But do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some 
but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. To underline today's teaching, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. How are the scriptures to be read, and how should we receive them when they are preached? Question 2. The singing of psalms is a non-negotiable and an essential part of Christian worship. Support this statement biblically. Question 3. How many sacraments are recognised in the Reformed Church? And what are those sacraments? Question 4. What would you say to a believer who insists that we should pray facing Jerusalem or that our meeting house needs to be incredibly grand? And question 5. As paragraph 6 finishes, the Westminster Divines tell us that we are to worship God in three specific places. Name them. That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn, and until next time, this we confess. Mm-hmm.